And welcome to this episode of 1202, where we're going to be looking at the rewards and the perils of authoring Human Factors books. But before we get into that, a quick reminder that whilst you're listening or watching this episode, I'm really keen for you to let us know what you think of, of the topic or any of the comments that are made within it or any other pertinent thoughts and for you to leave your thoughts in the comments of whichever platform you're listening to us through. We do try and go through them all and, and respond and generally I'm quite on the ball with that. So um, I'm really, really great to have a discussion. But it depends also what, what it is that you want to talk about. If it can be something quite serious, like so we had a lot of comments on the application of human factors in healthcare, um, as exemplified with the, in the episode with Peter Brennan recently. Or if you just got a really good joke. So David Golightly in his recent interview kicked off a, a stream of, um, of railway jokes. And so without further ado, we will go full steam ahead. And however it happens, getting your thoughts and ideas and feedback is really, really brilliant for us and helps us move forward as a channel. But it's fair to say that in my career, I have on more than one occasion used the term standing on the shoulders of giants. And in many cases, those giants are the people who've taken the time and the consideration to put what they've done, their experiences, their methods, and their understanding of how our industry works into a book. And that book allows the rest of us to learn from what they've done. Without these books, many practitioners would struggle on a day-to-day -day basis to achieve the consistency of approach and the agility in being able to flex methods to differing uh, and suitable situations. So I'm really pleased that one of those giants has been kind to join enough to, to kind enough to join us today, and that is Bob Bridger. He's the past president of the CIHF and author of a number of books, the most recent being Introduction to Human Factors in Accident Investigation, but has a number of books also aimed at those starting out on their human factors journey, a number of which still sit on my own bookshelf and I use regularly. So welcome, Bob, and thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, everyone. Hi, Barry. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So before we get into this idea of um, of how you know, authoring a, a human factors book and the sort of things we need to get involved, yeah. it'd be really fantastic to learn a bit more about you. I mean, I don't know who doesn't know about you, but um, but in terms of what you're doing currently, um, what are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, that's interesting, Barry. Nowadays, I'm, I'm self-employed through my own company. So um, I, I basically, I do work when it comes in um, on a, a task and finish basis. Um, so you could say that I'm coin operated, basically, um, you know, clear deadlines, clear, clear number of days, clear deliverable. Um, 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 and um, that's it. You pay the money, you get the deliverable. That's simple as that. And that suits me. I've, I've, I've had the pleasure over the last couple of years of working with the health safety investigation branch, assisting them with accident investigations or not, mm -hmm. not accident investigations, investigations of safety occurrences. Right. So, and that's been great. They're wonderful people. I really enjoy working with them. And one of the reasons I've enjoyed it so much is because my first job when I left school was an operating theatre assistant in a Croydon General Hospital. So okay. I was one of those people dressed in green pyjamas with a hat on and um, cream coloured wellies, pushing a trolley around, collecting patients, taking them into theatre and doing all the dirty jobs like hanging up the swabs covered in blood so they could do um, swab counts and taking out the amputated legs to the incinerator and all of that business. So it was really nice towards when I'm coming towards the end of my career to um, start working in, in hospitals again and visiting hospitals and seeing what's changed and what hasn't. 
and, um, and just working with a great bunch of people. I've done some other jobs as well that are interesting, one of which is um, helping companies that have to get protocols through the Ministry of Defence Research Ethics Committee. And um, as an ex-member of the Royal Navy Scientific Advisory Committee, I re reviewed over 500 protocols in all areas of human sciences. I kind of know my way around that process and um, I, can, um, I can give them a leg up quickly, um, yeah. get, get them through. Um, I've also done some presentations and um, courses and that kind of thing, which we can talk a little bit about later on. Um, at the moment, <clears throat> I'm very much a self-employed layabout because I'm waiting <laughs> to hear on about a, um, a fast boat project that I've um, agreed to support. But as you know what it is with some of these, with some of these work, it's, we're very much in hurry up and wait mode. You yeah. Know? yeah. Uh, okay. No, it's not ready yet. No, they haven't decided yet. No, we'll let you know. But okay, that's fine. So at the moment, I'm having a wonderful time. Um, I go to gym three times a week, play tennis three times a week, um, go for a cycle ride in the country if the weather's nice. Um, I annoy everyone by plugging my books on social media and on the community forum. Um, sometimes with success, you know, people actually do buy them after I do that. Um, and the other thing that I've been doing, which some of your viewers might be interested in, is I've got a, a, a fitness trainer's qualification and I've been helping out um, some older people uh, with sarcopenia. Um, What's that? It's loss of muscle mass with age, but a lot of it's deconditioning. Um, right, okay. If you read the literature, or my reading of the literature suggests that from about the age of 25 or 30 onwards, if you don't work in a physically demanding job, and if you don't do strength training or sports like judo or boxing, um, you lose about 1% of your muscle mass every year. So by the time you get to about 60, 65, you've lost probably 20 or more percent or more of your muscle mass. But you won't weigh less, will you? You'll weigh more. Hence the feeling that people often feel that they're right. slowing down with age because they've got less muscle to move a heavier body. Yeah, yeah. So the people who I've been helping are, are basically quite fit and healthy in their 60s and 70s. And they um, they play tennis, many doubles because they don't like running. Um, <laughs> but they also uh, do things like Pilates, um, mm -hmm. good diets. You know, they're not obese. Um, some of them are a bit overweight, but none of them are obese. They're always quite healthy, healthy people. But they've noticed that this loss of strength is beginning to affect their ability to participate in activities of daily living. Mm -hmm, yeah. You like opening jars and um, lifting up that bag of compost in the in the um, in, in the nursery, or lifting suitcases in and out of cars. And um, so I've been helping them out with strength training, and it is very interesting when you when when I assess them. I do find, in fact, that in some respects, the loss of strength is remarkable. Right. Okay. They, they just cannot do simple things that they would have been able to easily when they were 30, 35, yeah. it's because of inactivity. And the other thing that's really interesting for me um, is that even though they're quite health conscious people, none of them got any idea how to do strength training and they've never done it before. Right. Okay. And one of the interesting things about that is that Public Health England guidance says you should do 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise every week. That's your cardio, if you like to use modern terminology. Yeah. So go for a brisk walk for half an hour, five times a week. And the other thing is um, they recommend two days of strength training. Um, but most people have got no idea how to do that. 
Mm. And what I'm finding that's absolutely very interesting is, is once I introduce these people and get them going in a very a short, balanced program, is yeah, they come back to me after about a week or two weeks and they said they love it. Okay. Because they they get an improvement in muscle tone that lasts for a few days. Then when it goes away, they want to go back in and do some more because they want it back. Yeah, um, yes. One lady said to me that it was, uh, it was after I trained her to do squats and deadlifts, not with heavy weights, but with very modest weights. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, she said her back pain is gone. She doesn't get a backache anymore. Right, okay. Yeah. Which doesn't surprise me um, because they're both very, very good exercises for core stability and a lot of other things. And this is uh, this really interested me because, um, yeah, these are people more or less of my age or a bit older than me. Uh, and when we were young, exercise was more or less equated with running. Right. You know, yeah. if you said, it said to someone, oh, you know, 40 years ago, you said to someone, you need to get to more exercise or go for a run. Um, mm -hmm. If I'd have turned around to them 40 years ago and said, and someone said, you need to get some more exercise. And I, if I had said to them, oh, get in the gym and do dead deadlifts, squats and bench presses, they'd have looked at you as if you were insane. Mm, yeah. But nowadays, you know, if you go to my sports club, and you go in the gym, <clears throat> the weights room is packed with Generation Z. Yeah. Youngsters, 18, 25, they all do weights. And all the old duffers are on the cross trainers and, and treadmills and that. And um, either that, and the other thing that's interesting is lots of young women doing weight training nowadays, which you never used to see years ago. Yeah, yes. Uh, they either do that or they do, or they do calisthenics. I don't know much about calisthenics, but what I've seen is it's also very, very, very good, you know highly recommended so we have a real interesting generation shift going on here um, so presumably that's down to a better understanding of the science as much as anything else as well there'd be you know like i say it used to be just go and do go and do running but now it's there's a lot more knowledge and understanding about how our body works and how to get the most out of what you're doing well there is and there's a lot more evidence uh, that has come up over the last 10 years at least on the um um the effects of sarcopenia on uh, longevity. Right. I mean, basically, um, sarcopenia is just one of these general risk factors for reducing your lifespan. You know, like other things like high blood pressure or cardiac mm -hmm. insufficiency, all that kind of thing. And I think that's that's what lies behind Public Health England's current guidance of trying to get people to do um, more strength training. Um, okay. So that's it's very interesting, and it does lead on to. Um, some of the things that I, I'm going to be working on soon, because um, um, you know, as I explained, <clears throat> I, I don't um, work full time. I only work part time, and I only do work when it comes in. But I've got, um, which is great, by the way, because <laughs> it's, it's normally the real bonus is work that I normally enjoy doing. You know, yes, like with HSIB, it's great fun. But um, um, I'm doing um, a couple of articles for Safety Management Magazine. And the first one is on hybrid working and maintaining health. Mm -hmm. And the emphasis is on physical health. Um, I might um, take a look at mental health in another article um, early next year. But at the moment, the emphasis is on physical health. And I'm going to be talking a bit more detail about um, hybrid working and maintaining health with hybrid, work, hybrid working. And I'm going to talk a bit more about strength training as well. Um, yeah. Um, and that's so that should be out, I think, in August in Safety Management Magazine. So, um, you said that they're part, you know, um, partially retired or retired, you're keeping yourself um, very active. 
I sense yeah. the I, I sense the sitting around just just doing nothing actually doesn't live in your repertoire. Well, um, having having read the literature on um, um, health, nutrition, exercise, and longevity, um, I've got a vested interest in doing it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But the other reason is, I actually I like exercise. I mean, yeah. um, um, just on a personal note, as a, as a young man, I had a very dissolute lifestyle. I never did any exercise at all. Smoked 26 cigarettes a day. I was in the pub every night. Uh, younger listeners might be surprised to know that when I was at university, we had ashtrays in the lecture theatres. Right, okay. It, it was considered polite to smoke, you know. It showed yes. you were listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, once I converted to exercising um, regularly, um, um, the, the benefits are just obvious. Yeah, know? yeah. And you just feel so much better. Eventually, you get to the point where if you stop exercising, you just don't feel as good and you miss that feeling of being i mean i went to the gym this morning um for about 40 minutes and um and had a workout and yeah i feel great um i've got no post-lunch dip no tiredness um you know fully alert and you know definitely ready to have a walk down to the um the club for a pint later on um yeah. but um the next article that's going to come up for safety management magazine is going to be about human factors in accident investigation Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we've got lots of colleagues, haven't we, in the Institute who have um, some have moved from university to work for places like the Rail Accident Investigation Branch and places like that. Yeah, um, yeah. it's a real it's a real growth area. I was looking on LinkedIn uh, today and I saw that um, Nora over in Ireland is advertising another fantastic job um, with the Irish Railways um, on, um, uh, you know, with a big emphasis, I think, uh, on, on safety. Um, it really makes me wish sometimes I was 10 years, 15 years younger. I'd definitely go and work for one of those organisations in human factors yeah. and safety. I think it's really fantastic career opportunities and really interesting work. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I interviewed Nora the other day and this um, her episode should should have come out just before this one um, where she talks about the breadth of work that she does. And it's it's something that I've never got involved with yet. Um, but the more I read, so I've really, um, you know, you, you listen to colleagues, you re read the literature, you read, like I said, um, got your uh, latest book which which we've read as a as an introduction and, and things and it does make you think that whole investigative piece that whole looking at it looking at tr almost tragic events but through that human factors lens is is absolutely fascinating well it is and i think one of the reasons why organizations are employing <clears throat> human factors um, experts in accident investigation or investigating safety occurrences to speak you know more generally mm -hmm. is because you know we naturally take a systems approach yes and have done for 50 years, you know, it just in our blood, that's what we do. We look at things from all angles. We're multidisciplinary. We can see things from a physiological point of view and an anatomical point of view and a psychological point of view and a bit from an engineering and process point of view as well. Yeah. So we've got um, sort of automatically keyed in to look at things very widely. And I think that, that that's part of the value that we add. So anyway, the article that I'm writing next on, on this is, is basically, I'll be honest, it's just a teaser for my book. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's something quite... You're very good at pushing the um, um, pushing the, the the literature that you've been doing out on on social media. So hopefully, no, and we will put some links to the um, to the different bits in in the description of this. But you're quite right; there is a, there's a lot out there about what what you've achieved. Yes, please. Well, I'll, I'll be talking about the pros and cons of writing HHF books a little bit later, won't we? So yes, but we can talk about that. That we'll come back to that one, I think. But yeah. um, so but no, um, sorry, just to you talked about you being. Um, 
the young lad at university, uh, all that sort of stuff. How did you how did you get involved in human factors in the first place? Was that your first love, or did you come into it, or so how how did you find out that this such a thing existed? Well, I was one of those people who was always quite good at a lot of things, but not particularly good at anything. Right. <clears throat> so even though I really enjoyed physics, I did A level physics, mm-hmm. you know, and even though I really enjoyed that, and I was quite good at it. I knew that I wasn't good enough to do a degree in it. Right. Okay. And I liked biology as well. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Um, I didn't really want to do it. And at the same time, I liked, I, I thought history was really interesting as well. And, and English and writing. So anyway, I sort of made a, I ended up working as a psychologist for a while. And I realized that I was a rubbish psychologist. <laughs> Absolutely useless in the sense of, you know, I don't understand why people think I lack empathy. Right. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> you lack empathy, you moron, you know. So, I came across ergonomics, I thought like multidisciplinary, I thought, I'm going to do that. Um, and so I did it. And I think I did the MSc in um, University College London. And the minute I started studying it, I knew I made the right decision. I never looked back for a second. So you've touched upon some of the roles that you've had. Can you just give us a potted history of, of the career path from um, doing that MSc to um, basically working through your career, the different types of roles you've done? Okay, well, after the MSc, I went out and I worked for the Chamber of Mines Research Organization in Johannesburg, where they were, um, they did all the um, acclimatization work for acclimatizing people to work underground in the gold mines. Okay. Um, It's really big on physiology. And um, I did work there on things like uh, noise and performance of hydraulic and pneumatic rock drills. Um, That was quite interesting. And I got a very good grounding in in noise, um, (laughs) how to measure it. You know, doing things like third octave analysis, all that kind of thing. Uh, that was really good. Um, but after a while, I found that it was a bit boring. Um, and then uh, down in Cape Town, they'd set up an um, ergonomics program in the, in the biomedical engineering department. And the, <clears throat> there was a, a South African chap who I'd worked with in Johannesburg who'd retired from Loughborough. Um, he'd taken early retirement from Loughborough and gone back to South Africa to work um, for the mining industry on contract for a year. That's where I met him. Then he moved down to Cape Town to set up the economics program. But he told them that he was only going to work for one year because he wanted to retire. He wanted to be like I am now, you know, mm. a bit of a layabout. But um, he... <laughs> so um, anyway, I got the job. So I ended up working in Cape Town, running the postgraduate program in ergonomics. And we did a lot of things down there. Well, I did some a lot of my early work on seating, posture and seating and all of that kind of thing. Um, did lots of consultancy for industry, looking at um, you know, improving workstation, des- workstation designs, you know, preventing musculoskeletal disorders, all the old HSE stuff, you know, like manual handling risk assessments. Um, yeah. Did a lot of workshops and that kind of thing. Um, trained some, lots of students. Many of, many of the students, well, not many, some of the students that I trained there in the 80s and 90s are still working in South Africa as ergonomists. Some of them have got their own companies. Um, and I'm still a member of the um, South African Ergonomic Society. Um, okay. And uh, they're, 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 they've really set something up now. They've even managed to persuade the government to introduce ergonomics legislation. That's the wow. labor. So, yeah, yeah so um, very positive um, developments, the way it's gone over the years. Um, then when I finished my own PhD at uh, Cape Town, I was looking for something to do. And... Um, a new challenge really 
because I was busy, but I um, decided to write a textbook. Right. <laughs> In those days, you had loads of lecture notes you used to have to give to students. So I just thought, well, I'm yep. going to write them all up nicely. In, in, in slow time, you know, as a background task. I hired a graphic artist to do all the artwork for me and the figures. Um, most of those figures are still being used in the current book. Because, mm. um, cool. um, you know, cartoons of lumbar motion segments don't get out of date. Don't right? yeah, they, yeah. yeah they, they're there, that's it. <laughs> um, and uh, then I got the book published. And we could talk a bit more about that process yeah, yeah. in a moment. But, yeah. um, <clears throat> then in 1999, I moved with a young family back to the UK, um, mainly because um, for family reasons and because the South African rand had collapsed and the interest rate on my new mortgage had just gone up to 25%. Ouch. Yeah. So, ouch. <laughs> it was, you know, I just thought the next 10 years are going to be miserable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, I, I applied for the job at INM, Institute of Naval Medicine, and... Um, I got it and they gave me a relocation package as well. They relocated us, the whole family. Cool. So basically, basically the Royal Navy threw me a life belt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I, so I ended up down here at, um, down on the South Coast working, working at INM. And, and that was very good because it was, um, the quality of life down here is, has always been excellent. You know, I had a short commuting time. I could commute to work and back in five minutes with no traffic. Um, so that enabled me to have time to do other things. Um, yeah. So I wasn't wasting time sitting in, tra in traffic or in trains. So I was able to bring out new editions of my textbook and also do a bit of um, lecturing up, up for Peter Buckle and co up at Surrey. I did a bit of lecturing for them over the years, and that was good fun. Um, and also helped me with my, my book writing. Yeah. And then um, 2018, I decided it was time to... Um, do something new and so i um uh, left the institute and uh wife and i set up a little company and she she's an events organizer and okay. do a bit of events and consulting and that's what we've been doing ever since um and i also in the interim period i i published um a couple of books um the other one's a guide to active work in the modern office which we can talk about that's one of the cons of writing books by the way <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you why in a minute, but um, <laughs> um, and I also had a it, it was great timing because just before I was about to finish up at INM, the institute contacted me about the presidential term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So two things happened on my last day of work at INM. I had my first discussions about being starting three year term as president of, of CAHF, and I had my first meeting with HSIB to support them with an accident, uh, sorry, not an accident investigation, an investigation of a safety occurrence. Yeah. So it was like, you think to yourself sometimes, oh, I don't really believe in fates, you know, but sometimes you think, did I do that at the right time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did. That sense. That's really fascinating. Again, just see, seeing the the breadth of stuff you've you've got up to and the opportunities that you've taken. But as you say, we're going to talk, going to take a really quick break, and then we're going to get back into talking around um, the, the the books that you've written in particular. So we'll be back right after this. You are listening to Twelve O Two, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. 
Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back. And today we're talking with Bob Ridger about writing and publishing human factors books in particular. So, Bob, you've already sort of alluded to it, but how did you get into authoring HF books? And really, what 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 was that spark that sort of said you had that 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 collection of of notes that said that you then took and said, "I know, I'll publish a book." Because um, I've got to be honest, it's not the first thing that comes to mind for me when I've got really done various bits. I mean, maybe it's just my wrong mindset, but what 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 made you feel like you had you could do that? Well, I thought there was a gap in the market, um, right? Because in those days, there were about three main textbooks, like general textbooks. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about books like um, Steve Pheasant's books, which were really restricted to physical ergonomics. Mm-hmm. Excellent books in their time, by the way. I'm talking about general textbooks. So there was one, I think, called Human Factors in Engineering and Design by McCormick and Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was another one called Occupational Ergonomics by Stephen Cons. And these books were in their like fifth, sixth editions by the early 90s. Yeah. So they were actually written in the late 50s, early 60s. And yeah. okay. very much, they still had to me, I didn't really use any of them, but they still had the flavor of sort of 1960s industrial engineering. Yeah, great if you're running a factory in the 1960s, got everything you need. Yeah. But yeah. it didn't really. And I also felt that um, they weren't very good on biomechanics right? and things like musculoskeletal disorders, and they weren't very good on psychology either, Um, particularly with all the, as you you know, at that time, um, there was a lot of emphasis on cognitive ergonomics and getting cognitive match between technology and human information processing and getting that fit right or matching machines to minds as John Long once said. Um, and I felt that there was a, a good um, place in the market for a book that did that. And I also looked at all my lecture notes that I'd had and they weren't anything like what you would find in any of the competitive volumes. Right. Okay. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to give it a go. So, and I did something that most authors never do. And I did, because I didn't know any better. I'd never written any books before. So I just wrote the whole book, hired the artist to do the artwork and everything. It was ready. Contacted a publisher. Initially, I I wrote to um, Cambridge University Press in London, and they asked for some um, um, sample materials. And uh, I sent it off. Didn't hear anything for about three months. So I contacted McGraw-Hill in the U.S., and um, they came back to me with about six weeks and said, yeah, we'll take it. And wow. um, so I told Cambridge University Press that, sorry, you, you've missed the boat, mate. <laughs> and we got a sort of an apologetic letter from them, which um, made some mention of the tardiness of their reviewers. Right. OK. <laughs> so anyway, I went with McGraw Hill. And so that's how I got into it. Um, so for those of you who are never been into that bit that bit of writing a book or uh, maybe you're just thinking about it or what is what's the process what is it because right. you, you sort of went you know pen to paper write the book but you also alluded to that you, that isn't necessarily the right way so what 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 would a novice book writer be looking at in terms of process 
the process? Well, there's two aspects to that. There's firstly, what's going on in your own head. And secondly, there's what the publisher is going to ask you to do, the process right. that you'll have to engage in to get the book published. <clears throat> so sometimes people ask, speak to me and say, you know, I'd like to write an ergonomics book. What advice can you give me? And I say, what's the title of your book? And they say, oh, don't know. <clears throat> and so I say, well, go away and think of a title. Right, okay. Because books without titles don't get written. I don't know any books without titles. That's true, yeah. I've never seen one. <laughs> That's true. I've been to been to many libraries. I've never seen a single book that hasn't got a title. So, you know, yeah. Um, I'd leave it at that with people who say they want to write books. But with the publisher, what you have to do is you first have to approach the publisher. The publisher send, then sends you a book proposal form, and in that book proposal form, you have to give the, the title of the book. Surprise, yeah. surprise! A chapter list, some sample chapters, yeah. the names of any co-authors. You have to make a statement about that it's all original. You have to state what the competitor volumes to your book are. Mm -hmm. Okay, what's the competition? Yeah. You have to say what kind of courses the book's going to be used on. Um, you have to give the approximate length and the number of illustrations, the number of tables, and um, various other things. So in other words, it's quite a detailed form. Quite a solid and plan by the sounds of it. Yeah. quite solid so you have to make a case for it then what happens is the publisher sends it out to reviewers mm -hmm. um and the reviewers will be probably academics in universities um in the country where the publisher does most of its business or business business which is very often the us right okay and they those academics will review it and give their opinions which may be favorable or unfavorable mm -hmm. um and then you'll get that back and you'll have to respond in some way. And if that's satisfactory, then you'll be given a publication agreement. And then what you have to do is that will give um, like the, um, the deadlines for delivering the manuscript, all of the uh, legal stuff about copyright and so on. Um, it will state what your royalty is going to be and on which sales that royalty is applicable. So okay. be very careful there. I was about to say, how, where does money fall into all of this? How, how, how do you get paid? Royalties. Um, and you have to be very careful. Read the small print. Uh, the first publication agreement I was ever sent said you only got you only got royalties on books sold in the US. Right. Okay. <laughs> so read read the small print. Yeah. And um, you'll be very disappointed when you see what royalty uh, figure they're going to give you. But it's you know it's the same with most books. It's not very high. Right. Um, it's not much. Um, and some publishers nowadays, you'd be lucky to get 10%. Really? Wow. Okay. Um, so now that's, that's it with a textbook. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now a textbook is a book that you're intending to sell. You're intending that university professors and lecturers will buy it and adopt it as a course text and their students will buy it. And right. That's, okay. where, that's where the sales volume comes from. Yeah, <clears throat> a few other people might buy it as well. Libraries will buy it and companies, but basically you're going for the student market. Mm -hmm. And so if you're successful in getting the publication agreement, that's when your nightmare really starts because okay. the publisher will say, okay, you've got to do um, an instructor's manual What's that? to go with the book. Right. Okay. So at the end of every chapter, you've got to put in some questions, preferably problems that have got, have to be solved numerically. Mm-hmm. 
or in some other way. It could be essay topics, but basically you've got to put in some meaty questions there. Then you have to write a manual for the instructors that have got all the answers. Right, okay, yeah. Okay. Um, with Introduction to Human Factors and Ergonomics, fourth edition, um, which you all know about, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you get... Um, you get um, an instructor's manual, you get a guide to tutorials and seminars, you get over 500 PowerPoint slides. Wow. And you get um, access um, to all the artwork electronically. But you only get any of those things if you're an academic at a university and you adopt it as a course text. Right, okay, yeah. So in other words, <clears throat> you, Barry Kirby, couldn't phone up um, CRC press and say, can I have a copy of Bob Bridges' instructor's manual, please? Yeah. Um, it's not available. Um, obviously, because they, they don't want students to get their hands on them. Oh, to a, yes. No, that makes sense. Yes. That makes, that's makes a lot of sense. Um, so that's for a textbook. <clears throat> um, so a lot of work. So um, human factors and ergonomics is a fairly small market. So I, I think it's true to say that I didn't really get any return on the investment on my first book for the first eight years. Right, okay, wow. Um, then if you're lucky and you get it adopted as a course text when it starts selling, then um, you have to bring out a new edition. Um, right. And that's easy. That's, that's when, just a refresh of what you've done, yeah. Yeah, they, they basically, they normally ask for 25 or 30% new material. Okay. Which in a field like ours is dead easy to put in. I could say it's evolving so quickly that I guess there's there's always new stuff to to play with. Yeah, yeah, there's loads of it, and there's stuff there's stuff that you've learned as you've gone along. Better ways of expressing things, and mm. like my new book on human factors and ergonomics, um, the textbook, it's got a new prologue on it on human factors integration, because I thought that outside of places like MOD and the a lot of the big industries like Atkins and Thales, most people don't know a clue about human factors integration. No, that's true. That's that's you very know, true, actually. Yeah. You know, I mean, the first time you go to a meeting at one of those teams and human factors, it's almost like they're speaking a different language. <laughs> yes. Really? <laughs> so you've got you know, you've got to talk you've got to know what a requirement specification is, you've got to know what human factors integration plan is. <clears throat> you've got to know what things like D logs are and yes. yeah. all of all of that. So I yeah, you know, with the new book, I put in a new prologue on basically on HFI. Um you know how to write requirements yeah, yeah. All, all that stuff but you need so it's not just updating a book in terms of what's new in the literature it's updating it on what's going on outside in the world that you're sending the students out to yeah so um the really difficult thing about updating a book a textbook is deciding what to delete oh so i guess your the, the total page count needs to be roughly similar i'm guessing uh well, Mine's grown from about 530 to about 750 pages. But a lot of that is because I've been, been a bit sneaky and just putting lots of checklists and other stuff, um, which bogs it up. But it's deciding what to delete is really, really yeah. difficult. Because, because it must feel like you're, it, it, it's your child in many ways, isn't it? It's you, you, it you've got a, a vet, almost a vested love interest in almost every single word you've written because you, that's taken you pain and blood, sweat and tears to, to, to get it on there. Well, in some ways, yeah. But the thing is, what what really worries me is if you delete something, um, it will be forgotten, and then someone will reinvent it. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you look at a paper on in ergonomics that 
published that in, uh, something that was done, you know, 40 years ago, but uh, is actually was actually well known, but was then forgotten. Forgot, yes, yeah. Uh, so the, the trade-off is between um, 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 allowing the book to become a museum on the one hand, yeah, and on the other hand, uh, which you don't want to do, and on the other hand, stuffing it full of new stuff that's going to go out of fashion in three years. Yeah, so you can't. So that's where I guess a bigger difference between papers and uh, a book really comes into play because papers, you know, are of the moment they're generally cont or contemporary. Um, your book is something that you want to have some longevity to it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, that's basically textbooks. <laughs> um, if you can crack it, <clears throat> I think it is worth doing. Uh, the third edition of, of my introduction to ergonomics that sold 13,000 copies worldwide. Wow which is not bad <clears throat> and probably i think as a rule of thumb they say for every book that's sold because a lot of them go to libraries about five people read that read it so that's probably over 60 70 000 people have read it yeah 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 large parts of it and that must give you a, a I guess a, a really nice feeling inside actually being able to know that you've influenced um so many people in in something that you're passionate about yeah i mean <laughs> i had a, a a really a real eye-opener because you know when you're the author you just normally get the sales figures mm, you don't yeah. really know much about who's buying it or using it and about I think about 10 years ago i went out to the philippines to do some lectures i was at this university and they took me to lunch with the dean and the professor from the industrial engineering department and i said can you give us a short talk after lunch to the students and i said yeah okay <clears throat> i was expecting there to be about 10 or 15 postgrads yeah. i walked into this hall and there are about 200 people there Wow. And these students, there was physiotherapy, industrial engineering, occupational health, occupational medicine, <clears throat> and one or two others. Uh, and all of these students, but they only had one copy of the, each edition of my book. Right. They were falling to bits. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The pages were like yellow and because of so many people had read them. Wow. And um, yeah, people were really nice. So it, that, that, was a real, that was a real salutary experience. I, I enjoyed that. Um, but, um, yeah, so, uh, there are a lot of advantages of, of writing textbooks, but really, um, um, you have to do, if you're going to go down the textbook line, it's a lot of work. So it certainly uh, sounds it, to get that level of, um, you know, the amount of input in order to see any sort of return. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about, um, the difference between publishing and self-publishing because you've, oh, you're yeah. In your recent book so uh, is this you self-publishing are you literally printing the paper and creating the book or is it um what, what is self-publishing I'll, I'll tell you a story about that one <laughs> um uh, last year i gave a this was one of the things we do i gave um, um an online seminar for a, a group overseas uh two days lots mm. and lots of material human factors and safety management really and um it was during lockdown and afterwards, it all went really quiet. And so I thought, I'm looking for something to do. <laughs> so I thought, I know what, well, I'm going to paint my house. Okay. So I got my ladder out. And so there I was up this ladder, painting away, following the working at height, reg height regulations. Mm -hmm. You bet. Of <laughs> <laughs> you were. And while I was painting away like this, your mind wanders. And I thought, why don't I write up all that stuff as a book? Because I've always wanted to write a simple book about human factors that anyone could understand. 
yeah. isn't full of all this stuff about complexity and complex socio-technical systems and all the models and all that stuff. Something simple. Why don't I write one about accidents? And I've always wanted to have a go at self-publishing. So anyway, huh. when I finished painting the house, I, <laughs> I thought, I think I'm going to write the book rather than engaging in another dangerous DIY task <laughs> of becoming subject of an accident investigation myself. So, <laughs> so I, I just sat down, I got all the material and updated it, wrote the book. And I had some familiarity with Amazon's Kindle direct publishing platform. Right. Okay. Um, so um, um, I, I got on that and I published it on there. And how that works is you actually become a publisher. I'm now I'm now a book publisher. Okay, congratulations. So, thank you. I'm now an <laughs> author, a publisher. And when I bought, uh, so I own the copyright to the book. I own all the material. I own the ISB number, ISBN number, which, right. I, which I paid for. So I've got complete control over it. Uh, it's all mine. Yeah. Um, so I control the price. Right. It's great. What happens is it's on sale on Amazon. And if someone buys it on some book production factory somewhere, it just gets printed out and posted, you know, like Amazon, Amazon, that's what, oh, Amazon, right. okay. yeah. that's what Amazon does. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, um, they don't, well, all, all the book publishers nowadays, they don't print hundreds of copies of books and then try and sell them. It's you know, on demand. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, like just in time, you know, and all that stuff. Um, so all those principles apply. So that's how it works. Um, and there are things that I like about self-publishing, but there are drawbacks. Um, one thing, well, as you've gathered, one of the things I really like is that you have all the control. Yes, it's, I mean, it's your the, baby. It's your baby. Um, I just put the price of the ebook up, right? Um, um, which originally I was selling for nine dollars ninety-nine, um, thinking that the low price would be compensated for by increased sales. Like developing countries with not got much money, mm -hmm. but people don't like ebooks, so. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I I was talking to my wife about this. I come to chat to you about this, and that. I very much like fiction books. I like on my um as an ebook. Um, but when it comes to workbooks, fact books, you know, books that you're going to use as a as a reference, I much prefer paper books because you can scribble in them. You can put your um, you know, your, your tabs in the, the most used bits of it and things like that. There's something yeah, yeah, yeah. a bit. I don't know why it should be different because you can do all that with an ebook. But there is just something about for um for this type of stuff to have that that printed version. Yeah. Um... I think what some people have said to me who use my book is that in, in, in their jobs, they have it by the side, of, they have it on their desk by their computer so they can look at it while they're working on something. But disadvantages of self-publishing are you don't have an author, you don't have a publisher to help you with marketing, particularly in universities. Right. Yeah. You have to do all the marketing yourself. Otherwise, no one's going to know it exists. Yeah. yeah. It. Um. The other disadvantage, I think, is, well, that is the main disadvantage. <clears throat> um, one of the great things about the, like the, the Amazon platform is that I don't do anything about sales or delivery or postage. Yeah. Amazon does all of that. Um, uh, there are the other advantage, of course, is with, with um, um, these internet platforms is, is the royalty is much higher. Okay. So you, you can charge less. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, with my 
book on accident investigation coming out at £22.50 a copy. I think that's a pretty keen price. Mm, absolutely. It's it's not, you know, I mean, I reckon if that had gone with a, a mainstream publisher, you'd be looking at £35, £40 at least. Yeah. Um, so there are advantages and disadvantages. There's one big disadvantage of going through um, self-publishing for in our kind of work. Right. And that is that the Amazon platforms like Amazon are set up to sell to individuals. Right. They don't, they don't sell to university libraries and university libraries don't use them. University libraries use um, other companies and these companies provide a platform. Um, I'm, I was fortunate in that my book uh, on accident investigation one and the fourth edition of the textbook, by the way, they're both available on a platform um, by a company called Cortex. That's okay. that's Cortex with a K, not a not a C. Yeah. And, um, because universities want to do distance learning, and students won't be able to access the book, you know, when they're from anywhere, not just when yeah. they're in the university library. Um, so I was fortunate, and I got a, an arrangement. I got a, 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 an agreement with them to um, um, supply the book to um, universities. And to give you an idea, I think Cortex has something like two million ebooks. Wow! Okay, which it sells to hundreds of universities all around the world. Um, Substantial platform. Yeah, so that's a, a huge distribution network. So. Uh, um, Amazon is a great distribution network and great um, distributor for um, self-published books that are going to individuals. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. um, you need you, you need more if you if you want to write an ergonomics book that's going to sell in universities. Okay, so so what's next then? What you've talked about the books that you've written. What what are you writing about next? What's what's the next book to come out? <clears throat> well, I've got the two these two little articles that I'm writing, mm -hmm. um, and. Um, terms of books nothing at the moment but we have got um i've got uh, a, a trip to singapore at the end of august to do a keynote and a workshop on human factors and accident investigation okay um and that's probably very largely a result of the the book it's, i think that's a spin-off of um publishing the book um, yes generating yeah. generating interest in human factors in accident investigation um, and then in um, October, I'm going to be talking to uh, one of the high-risk industries in Norway, um, also about human factors in accident investigation um, and how to how to um, sort of, as it were, to institutionalise human factors in your accident investigation process in a large high-risk industry. Okay. Um, and that's um, that'll be very interesting, which may lead to um, um, some more work, and um, um, uh, that'd be good. And then at the end of August, sorry, the end of October, I've got a Zoom meeting uh, with the Chilean Economic Society because they, because last time I was over there, I, I I gave them a couple of copies of the the accident book. And they're actually very interested to know how their ergonomists can get involved in accident investigation in Chile. Wow. Um, so that's some things coming up. So when you start publishing these books, things things happen sometimes unexpectedly. Stuff comes in. Yeah. Um, so to see, see yourself quite busy. Eh? I'm going to see yourself quite busy then. Well, 
no, I'm, ne I'm never really busy. <laughs> Optimally loaded in good human factors terms. As busy as, you, as busy as you want to be. Yes, op 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 optimally loaded. That's what I yeah. meant. Um, but no, uh, um, um, Taylor and Francis did contact, had contacted me about the next edition of the textbook and whether I was interested in, in doing one. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, basically, not immediately, because I don't want to compete against myself because the yeah okay. this one's still selling. Yeah. It's sold over 5,500 copies so far, which is it's not bad, you know. That's um, pretty cool. Well, certainly when I consider how long it took me to to bring to produce it, yeah, um, and with the royalties that I've got, it's actually, um, it, it's yeah, it's, it's it's financially worthwhile. So I think the fifth edition will be financially worthwhile. But I told them that I didn't I, I didn't want to do anything until two thousand and twenty three. So probably sometime in two thousand and three, probably the latter half, I'll start with the the book proposal form again. <laughs> <laughs> go, mm, go through all of that you know what's the competitor what are the competitor volumes la, 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 la. who's the market uh, you, sometimes you think that like, so if you don't if you don't know um, why, you yes. <laughs> why, why bother to ask me but anyway I'll do all that and then we'll get stuck in then probably that'll be quite a big job actually but it'd be fun because there's um, there's loads of interesting new things to write about aren't mm. there in our field yeah. I mean I could just see it you know Artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, exoskeletons, all that stuff. The real challenge there is going to be what do, what am I going to delete? Yes. <clears throat> yes. What would you what would you lose in order to gain? Yes. Yeah. So um, and that's so probably looking at a new edition by around some 2025. Fab. Well, which, which is about the lifespan of a textbook, seven or eight years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the. Um, um, I'll, I'll put in my pre-order now to update my bookshelves. Um, oh, yeah. it's... <laughs> so that's really, really helpful. And I think really insightful for, um, um, anybody who's thinking, thinking about a, not only about writing their own, own textbook and that type of thing, because clearly you don't necessarily want the competition, but I guess appreciating the complexity about what goes into the background of what you're doing. But talking about books, we, Everybody I interview now, I ask a, a final three questions that is the same for everybody. And, and this one might be a bit of a, uh, an easy one to answer for you. But, um, but what is your go-to book? What is the book that, or a paper that you pick up and use repeatedly as a, as, a, as, a, as a core thing? You knew I was going to do this, didn't you? Yes, I knew you were going to pick up your own book. Yes. <laughs> there, there are two reasons for that. Yeah. Firstly, because if, if I'm writing reports for... Um, um, uh, someone like the HSIB yeah. um, or a protocol, and I need a reference for something, I know where to find it in there. Yes, yeah. You know, so I can just grab exactly. it, you know, rather than sort of going onto Google Scholar and, 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 and trying to find a reference in appropriate to back up what I want to say. So I know where to find stuff. Um, uh, and the other reason is, because obviously it's 750 pages long. I can't remember all that. <laughs> to keep it with you. Um, so that, 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 that's what I, that's what I um, keep, I keep um, by, by my laptop all, all times. Fair play. Um, if you could, if you could go back and, and speak to a younger, younger version of yourself, young Bob, um, what advice would you give yourself given buy, what you know now? Hmm? Buy shares in Microsoft and Apple. Oh, fair play, yes. No, that's um, um, yeah. See where that they're at now. That would be um, 
interesting. Um, and this is where I, I try and get something for nothing in many ways um, to get you to do some of my work for me. Um, who would you suggest I interview next on the podcast? Who would you like to hear me interview? Well, I would think, well, I, I'll tell you what, um, um, I wouldn't necessarily ask you to interview. Um, and that would be any more boring old farts like me. Um, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm being facetious, sorry. But um, what would be interesting, might be interesting, because I've had this experience myself, and it would just be interesting to see whether what other people think. Try to interview somebody who's worked in academia for, say, 15, 20 years, mm -hmm. and has then moved out into a consultancy or into a large organisation like the Tali's or uh, the rail accident investigation branch or the marine accident investigation branch and ask them to <clears throat> talk about the the pros and cons and the experiences of um, of working life. How does working life differ um, okay. in those organizations? And how does that relate to uh, the management structure and the demands that are placed upon you, the amount of control you have and all that kind of thing? That might be interesting. No, absolutely. And the other one, the other one, I think, would be really interesting. Would be anybody who's, um, and it might not be quite time yet, but anybody who's doing a lot of really good research on exoskeletons. Yes, that is definitely seems to be a um, um, a really fruity topic at the topic at the moment. So. Um, yeah, well, I, was, I was delighted at the at the conference when they had those exoskeletons. I tried some. I tried one on and and had a go with it. Mm. And I was quite impressed. In many ways, they weren't. I don't know what I expected. I guess I was um, thinking that, like the them things you have of like the, the film Predator and things like that, or, or Alien. But um, just the almost the gentle support that they give you um, yeah. Yeah, was gentle. was really was really interesting. Mm. Um, mm. Cool. Well, I shall do that. Well, thank you, Bob, for your insights um, into publishing. And if anybody's interested in contacting Bob, then his contact details are on our website at 1202podcast.com under under this episode. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Bob, for your time. That's, re that's really, really cool. Um, I would like to thank everybody also for listening and, and for watching now, because obviously we are on YouTube. Um, and we look forward to seeing you all on the next episode. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human, the Human Factors, Factors Podcast. Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next See you time. Next and remember, it's more than just common sense.